I encourage you to take your Bible today as we talk about a message of hope for America. Turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. This has been a very unusual year, to say the least, for 2020. And who knows what the next six months has in store for us as well. And so I don't know about you, but I'm just seeking God and trying to listen to him to kind of understand what's going on. But then what do we do going forward as a believer, as a church, as a nation? You know, and so I came to this passage of scripture in 2 Chronicles chapter 15. And Israel was in a similar situation of chaos at the time. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, look at verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Verse 3, for a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Verse 6, they were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And may God in his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. So COVID-19 is continuing to rise in our country. We've sensed uh, racial tension and we've seen nonviolent protests and then we've seen violent protests and riots break out. We see division, even among evangelical pastors of all colors. And we're not all in agreement on how to view this thing of the racial tension that's going on. And one of the major problems we have is that we're not open to sit down, to talk, to have an open discussion where we can even eventually agree to disagree or come to a place of compromise. We're struggling to find avenues of reconciliation and solutions to the problems that we're facing. I read an article recently that said, uh, it was in the New York Times, it said, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences discuss what is called motive attribution asymmetry. What is that? Well, it's a practical or technical term for the assumption that your ideology is based on love and your opponent is based on hate that there's no common ground. And otherwise, we're the good guys and you're the bad guys and we're here to wipe you out. They discovered that the average Republican and Democrat today are as divided as the Palestinians and the Israelis are in their country. In this New York Times op-ed, Arthur Brooks says that we see the other side as the enemy with whom we cannot negotiate or even compromise. And he came to this startling conclusion in his article. He said, people often say that our problem in America is incivility or intolerance. That's incorrect. He said, it's motive attribution asymmetry, leading to something far worse, contempt, where we're angry and we're disgusted with the person that doesn't agree with us. And it's made worse by what he calls the outrage industrial complex that caters to one side and criticizes the other. And that's really where we are in our country. We're very polarized on many things, even how COVID-19 should be dealt with, as well as the racial issues. And so many times people want the same thing, but they have different 
pathways or different solutions to the problem. So we should be good listeners to others, showing respect and learning how to even agree to disagree. So I encourage you to take out your outline if you would and, and fill in these blanks if you can. And first of all, the important thing we want to point out is the chaos in our culture, the chaos in our current culture. As I said, Israel had some of the same issues going on, different time, different circumstances, but they were at each other's throat. There was no unity. There was a lot of disagreement. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 5, it says, In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. First thing you see there is no peace among individuals. He starts with the smallest of all things, and that's the individual. It's interesting in the Peanuts cartoon, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole world. And Charlie Brown says, but I thought you had inner peace. And Lucy says, well, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. <laughs> so many of us are not content with ourselves. We're not content with our standing in society. And we fear, what is going on in our culture? Where is this, what's this gonna lead to? What's gonna happen in the future? We look to see how the politicians try to resolve these conflicts, but to no avail, and we see things spiraling downward, even more out of control as it seems as every day passes. And as I said before, I'm as confused as anybody as to what is going on. So no peace among individuals. Second of all, no peace among people groups. He talked about the inhabitants the different groups of people within Israel. As stated in the introduction, we pit one group against another and we call one another evil. Logic and reasoning with one another are not on the table. One has to be right and the other group has to be vilified and that was what was going on with Israel as they tried to justify their opinions, their viewpoints. And then there was no peace among the nations, he goes on to say in this passage. And we think about our current situation where North Korea... China, Europe, India, the Middle East. There's all kinds of, of tension. We see a civil unrest and even civil wars in Syria and parts of Africa. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So as you look around at this and you look at Bible prophecy and you wonder, is this the end times? Is the rapture just around the corner? Is it on the horizon? We don't know. If you're premillennial, pre-tribulational, you believe that's the next thing that could occur if God decides to do that. But we don't know. We don't know if this is God allowing these dark days to come on, uh, to pass on America because of judgment for things that we've done to turn away from the word of God, like making abortion and same-sex marriage legal. But our application here is that we must discern the chaos of our culture through the lens of God's word. Not man's thoughts, not man's solutions to the problems. We know it's only the gospel, it's only the cross of Christ 
that could truly bring reconciliation in the midst of this time of racial tension. It's tearing down those dividing walls and bringing us and making us one new man, as it says in Ephesians. So we have to discern the chaos of our culture through the lens of God's word. So we understand there's the chaos, and what's the cause? What's the root cause of the chaos that's going on in our culture? Well, it tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 3 what Israel was going through and why they were in a time of chaos in their culture. It says in verse 3, For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. Think about that. First of all, there was no worship of one true God. Over and over, as you read the Old Testament, you see they began to adapt the gods of the people that either lived among them or near them. The Baals, the Ashtoreths, and all these things. They turned to idols instead of God. And so we see that in our country. If we're not careful, we can Americanize the gospel. We can make it something that's just of our Western thought and the way that we view it. There's a great video, as I shared two weeks ago, called the American, the American, what is it, the New American Gospel, and I encourage you to look at it on Netflix. It talks about how we've kind of put this in our own vernacular. We gotta be careful that we don't wrap the gospel in patriotism. It's good to be patriotic, but that's not gonna be the answer or the solution to the situations in our country. Avoid the gospel of nostalgia, where we want things to go back like they were in the 40s and the 50s. And as someone has said, the good old days weren't really the good old days. If you really stop and think about it, there were lots of problems and issues back then as well. We got to be careful we don't wrap our gospel in denominationalism or personal preferences. And I've found over the years, as I've grown as a Christian, that the more time I spend praying and reading God's word, it messes up what I thought was my theological views. It changes things because we want the perspective of God and not what man says about theology. So we have to get back to who God is in the Bible and turn off our filter and our lens of how we think we see God. We need to see him through the word of God. Jesus, after all, was a Middle Eastern man when he walked on the earth. And we need to think like the Israel, Israelites did at that time. Sean King, who's one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter, he recently said all murals and stained glass windows of white Jesus and his European mother and their white friends should also come down, speaking of the other monuments. They're a gross form of white supremacy created as tools of oppression, racist propaganda. They should all come down because he feels like it's a picture of ways of oppressing the African-American people in our country. So we have to be careful what that gospel is and uh, proclaim it the way the Bible teaches and see it for ourselves as to what it is. Second of all, no teaching priests. No teaching priests. They did not know who the one true God was because Israel was not teaching Yahweh or Jehovah or looking to the scrolls that they had in the Pentateuch to teach the word of God to people. It's kind of like this, if we think about an analogy of the National Football League. There's the kingdom in New York where Roger Goodell is the commissioner and he is head of the National Football League. And on any given Sunday in certain cities in the fall, we have professional football games where two teams meet. One is a visiting team, one's a home team. 
and they gather together and they have different colors and the uniforms look different. And both teams, their goal is to take the ball and advance it and cross the other team's goal line to score as many points as they can. The other team is to do everything they can to oppose that and to keep that from happening. And of course, the team that scores the most points wins the game. Well, besides those two teams, there's another team that's part of that game, and that's the referees. And they're charged from New York with a rule book to maintain the rules of the game. They may come and they may say, well, I like this team over another team. It doesn't matter. Their preferences have to be set aside. It doesn't matter if, uh, if they feel like being lenient one day or another. They have to stick to the book, the rule book that's given to them. If a player or a team uh, does something opposing the rule book, they penalize them. In some cases, they find them and even suspend them as well. But all the rules and everything that they do is backed up by the authority of the kingdom of New York, the National Football League. Well, you and I as Christians, this is our rule book. This is what we live by. And it's important we teach everything in it to be instant in season and out of season. Because our kingdom is God, and we are here to teach the world and say to the world, these are the things that you're going to be judged by by the end of your life, that you're going to stand and have a final examination. What did you do with Jesus, and what did you do with the word of God? So it's important that we teach, whether we're a pastor, whether we're a Bible study fellowship teacher, Sunday school teacher, or just a mom and dad in the home, We need to proclaim the word because chaos occurred in Israel because there was no teaching priests. We see thirdly, there was no law, no law. If you don't know who the one true God is and the priests and pastors are not teaching you, you have no absolute law to follow. We've lost the view of absolute truth in our postmodern, post-Christian society. Everyone has their own version of the truth. And I talked to so many people that out in the culture, and it's all based on experience. It's based on how they were brought up. It's based on how they were educated or how they view or prefer things. And, and they're left, if you really look down deep, with hopelessness and meaningless lives, lives without purpose and desperate to fall for anything. I remember Ernest Hemingway, who was a famous atheist. He committed suicide because he felt like there was no hope in this world. In his little booklet, Absolute Truth, Mark Ashton tells the following story about a professor who demonstrates that moral relativism, which means that you can live by whatever you think truth is and it's always changing, that it's unlivable. You can't live that way. There is a professor at the University of Illinois who teaches philosophy and his name is Roger Wenger. And in his introductory to ethics class, he tells all of his students and ask them, how many of you think that truth is relative? And he says, it often comes out that two-thirds to three-fourths of the students raise their hands and believe truth can change based on the situation, based on whatever I want it to be at that time. And then he informs the class that after time, as he goes through the syllabus and he goes through all the textbooks they need to read and all the details, he comes to the, what the tests are going to look like and how they're going to be graded. And Wengert informs the class that they will be graded according to their height. And some smart alecky tall kids started laughing, and and they changed, and he says, but the short people are going to get the A's, and the tall people are going to flunk the class. 
Well, inevitably, a student's hand raises up and he says, your grading system's not fair. I'm the professor, said Wingert. I can grade however I wish. The student insists, but, when you, but what you ought to grade us according to is how well we learned the material. You should look at your pa our papers and exams and see how well we've understood the content of the course and grade us on that. And the class nods in affirmation, especially the tall students right away, right? And Professor Wenger then replies, by using words like should and ought, you betray your alleged conviction that truth is relative. If you were a true relativist, you would realize that there is no external standard to which my grading should conform. If my truth and my ethic led me to an alternative grading system that you deem appropriate, so be it. I will grade however I wish. You cannot live life believing in moral relativism if you follow it to its logical end. God is giving a clarion call through the coronavirus and this racial tension to return the church to being the moral compass of our society. I really think that's one of the things that he's doing. He's calling the church out to take a stand and to share the gospel. This country, this constitution, the Bill of Rights were all founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. And I know that Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin were probably deists, but the idea of our American experience was founded on two basic principles. Men could freely worship their religion and follow the truths of that religion, or the churches were to teach the word of God and be the moral compass to train people to follow the teachings of the Bible and pursue their rights to come from God and how they treat their fellow man. This country was built upon the premise of religion, specifically Judeo-Christian perspective of religion. That was the foundation of our society. And without God in the marketplace and the decisions of our lawmakers, the American experience is going to die. They believed you couldn't have the American experience if you make it a secular country in the public square based on the readings and histories of our founding father. Think of George Washington in his farewell address as president on September 19, 1796. He said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and morality are indispensable supports. He went on to say, and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. The atheists have to borrow morality from somewhere to have a moral foundation. John Adams said to the Massachusetts militia in 1798, because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of the Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So the foundation of our laws, the Ten Commandments from John Locke in England and other things that frame our Declaration of Independence and Constitution all are based in the Judeo-Christian ethic. So our application is this, that we must take responsibility as the church for the responsibility for the chaos in our culture. We've got to do a better job of giving out the law, of teaching the truth. As we said, Israel struggled because they didn't follow one true God. They had no teaching priests. They had no law. We are the influencers in this culture. So what's the cure for the chaos in the culture? What is the cure? Look at 2 Chronicles 15 once again. Verses 1 and 2. 
the Spirit of God came upon Azariah. He was a prophet, the son of Odad, and he went out to meet Asa, who was the king at that time. For 41 years he reigned over Judah and Benjamin. And he out to meet Asa, and he said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Skip down to verse 6, the second part of that verse. It says, For God troubled them with every sort of distress. Is God troubling us? Is it a satanic attack? These things that are happening in our country? We don't know. In verse 4, But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. So we need to recognize the distress is coming from God to wake up the church. Whether it's Satan or whoever, however it works, it has to pass through God's sovereign plan and hands as well. So distress is being allowed or is coming from God to wake us up. Second of all, we're to repent from staying on the sideline and not engaging the culture. We have to find ways, whether that might mean to, for some of us to get on, onto a school board and to stand up and, and speak our views from a Christian perspective on curriculum choices and things like that. It may mean that getting involved in going to city council meetings or whatever it may mean. It's in finding ways to engage the culture. And then to respond by seeking and following God alone. That's what I've been spending a lot of time doing, praying and just listening and waiting on God to say, what is it? What is it you want for our country? And so how can revival come to our country? Well, here's a, here's a little sermon within a sermon. How can revival come to a country? Now you have to understand revival is God's special desire to come and bring the Holy Spirit and invade a church, a people, a country at his divine will and purpose. There's no magic formula if you do X, Y, and Z that God is going to show up. But there are some things that we can do to invite and hope and ask God to show up and to bring revival to our country. And I really believe it begins with Christians uh, starting out by praying in small groups. If you look through history of the first and second and the great awakenings in our country, they began with small prayer meetings that grew into bigger prayer meetings before the Holy Spirit came and transformed lives. So what does it look like when God shows up in a group of people and shows his glory in the church? Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Take your Bible and turn over there. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 20 and 21. Because in verse 21 it says, To him be glory in the church. God desires his glory to be displayed in resplendent majesty and honor and prestige and power in his church. That says in verse 20 of Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the ultimate purpose of the church is that God wants his glory to be revealed through his people, his believers. And are we as a church praying for a special visitation of the Holy Spirit upon us? That's what we need to find out what God has in store for the future in the time of chaos and turmoil. 
How and when does God bring special visitation of the Holy Spirit on a church? Well, some conditions. First of all, you can write these down. Prayer with believing faith. Prayer with believing faith. As I mentioned, J. Edwin Orr and others who studied revivalism, it all begins with prayer meetings. One of the great awakenings began with a small group of businessmen meeting at noon over a lunch hour in New York City. And eventually that small group went to hundreds and meeting in different locations throughout New York City at the noon hour to pray for revival and God showed up in an amazing way. Prayer with believing face in Ephesians 3.20, it says now to God who is able. Dr. A.T. Pearson said there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. So we have to come in prayer, in believing faith, and as we sit in prayer with God, staying in sweet communion with him, God begins to show himself and reminding us of who he is by the revelation of his creation and by the power of his word. And as we pray and are still before the Lord, we begin to see and reminded of who he is, and then as a result of understanding who he is, how to respond in light of that. Second of all, fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. There was a pastor, and he his kids were young, and they decided to go and meet with another family in the church and to have a meal together. It was summertime. They were going to have a picnic, and they went to this uh, church member's house. The two families got together. Well, as the pastor's son got out of the car, his name was Kirsten. He was seven years old, and uh, he was looking eyeball to eyeball to a German shepherd. Unfortunately, that German shepherd was wagging his tail and had his tongue out, and he was very, very friendly. And so Kirsten patted him on the head, and you know they became friends almost instantly. Well, later on, as they were getting ready to eat, the pastor told his son Karsten to run out to the car that they'd forgotten something. And as Karsten took off running, that German shepherd began to grow, growl very loudly. And finally, the owner of the German shepherd, the father of that family, said to Karsten, you have to understand he doesn't like it when people run away. You have to show respect and walk when you leave him. That's a good example of God. He's loving and he's caring, but he wants us to respect him, to understand the balance of respect and comfort that God is there for us and loves us. Matthew Henry in his commentary talks about in our applications of who God is, we should encourage our faith by considering his all-sufficiency and his almighty power, the fear of the Lord. Thirdly, holiness, holiness. It says in Ephesians 3.20, according to the power at work within us. The power at work within us is that Holy Spirit who's making us more and more like Jesus Christ. And I think that we are most like him when we are living holy lives. Holiness involves the gift of repentance from God. It's uh, coming and exercising that gift of repentance every time we sin. And keeping our list of sins short so we're in right relationship with God. I read a story this week just astounded me that the iPhone 10 has face recognition. How many of you have iPhone 10 or face recognition on your phone? A few of you do, right? And they told the story of, of this uh, woman who had a family, she had children, and she set up her iPhone 10 for face recognition. And you know, it's a very sophisticated program that they use because obviously they don't want just anybody unlocking the phone. Or a 10-year-old daughter picked up her phone and looked into it, and it unlocked. 
because she looked so much like her mother that it couldn't recognize the difference. You know, when you and I, when we're living out holy lives, that's when people see God really at work in our lives, that we reflect his holiness. It tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We're citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens of earth. And so when we live those holy lives, we are reflecting who God is. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's holiness to you, seeing how close you can get to the things of this world and not stepping over the line into those things. Or is holiness staying as far away from sin as possible and dealing appropriately with the temptations that come into your life? I believe God wants the latter to be true of our life. And then not only holiness, but surrender. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. As you and I pause in prayer before a holy God, is our heart wide open to him? Are we giving him complete access to every area of our life, our social life, our checkbook, our entertainment choices, and the list goes on and on. Is our heart wide open? Is everything on the table for God to touch, to use, to speak to? That's what he's asking of us to bring revival. And lastly, to receive, receiving. The end result is to ask God what he wants to do or give to me as a result of fearing him, seeking holiness and surrender to his ways fully. It says in Psalm 51 that God will never despise someone who has a heart of repentance and a broken heart over their sin and the sins of their country. God desires through this process to bring glory, his glory to the church. If we pray, if we surrender, if we seek holiness, if we receive from him, if we have the fear of the Lord, then God, these are the preconditions for God showing up in a supernatural way. And he closes that chapter out in Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. And I hope that's the desire of your heart to see the glory of God revealed in our midst so that we can go out and radiate that holiness and to be reflectors of God's glory through our praises in the church. And then to be able to say with Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6 verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. After we receive, we respond. We respond to God's revealing through his coming down and hovering over us in a special way. When we receive what God has for us, we respond. We go out in confidence, surrender by faith, empowered by God's grace to obey his words to us. I don't know about you, but I pray that we would receive the visitation of God in our church, to see the glory of God in all his splendor, in all his majesty, in all his holiness, as we worship together here 
in love with one another. Then we take each week what we receive and we go out and we live it out throughout the week. That's how revival starts and spreads out to a culture and to a nation. That's what led David to say in Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So what's our application? We must have solid biblical arguments for what we believe and be able to communicate them well with love and respect. That's so important. It's not enough to know what we believe, but we need to know why we believe it. The world is wanting us to answer that question, why? Why should I believe in Jesus? Why should I follow the truths of the Bible? We need to be able to give an answer to those things. And our key thought as we close today is help us share that truth is absolute. And God is the giver of that truth because of the cross of Christ. The cross is enough. The cross is the final word is a song that we sing sometimes. It is it. We have to be gospel-centric in all that we do. Bring everything back to the cross. Here's some questions to ponder this week. Has the chaos in the culture paralyzed you as a believer? I know there's been times in the last few weeks I've just sat down like, you know, what do I even do? How do we even plan? As Carrie and Austin get together, we're like, we don't even know what we're going to do in August. We don't even know what we're going to do two weeks from now. You know, what do you do? Second of all, are we following the Bible as if it's the final authority for truth in our life? That's what we have to go back to, the fundamentals and what we believe, and let God lead us. And how are you moving toward God by faith and for courage to stand for him? I read an article this week about a young student at a Christian college, Hardin-Simmons in Abilene, Texas, a school I never heard of. And she put a post out there that not only do black lives matter, but all lives matter. And that young lady is no longer part of that Christian college. And so there's going to be prices to be paid for standing up for biblical truths coming up in the future. We're in a cancel culture situation. And it's going to cause us to really rethink how to say things, but also to stand for the truth, no matter what it's going to cost us. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. I'm just going to give a few moments of quiet prayer for you to contemplate and think about and pray for God to bring revival. Revival to our hearts here in our church, revival to our community, and revival to the leaders of our country. We know the revival does not begin on Air Force One. It begins in the church. It begins with believers. As we tune our hearts to his ways and we adjust and adapt our lives to what he wants. He will bring to pass bringing glory to the church. Take a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we come with broken hearts for our, our nation today. Some see so much civil unrest and so many things we could describe about our country. But Lord, we just pray and ask that you would just show up in a miraculous way. Or if the rapture is not on the horizon, we pray that you would bring revival to our country. 
Help us to turn back to you. Our founding fathers were imperfect and, all, and they didn't do everything right, but they did, we believe by divine providence, bring this nation together. And we believe you birthed it, Lord. And we pray you help us to return to the principles that we were founded upon. Bring a great awakening to our country in some way. Help our churches to be willing to have pastors stand in the pulpit and preach your word unashamedly. We know some would view the cross as foolishness and other the power of God unto salvation. So help us, Lord, to not worry about the negativity and the persecution, but to do what's right, because ultimately you will bless in the end. And Lord, we do just truly pray for revival. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.